Congress of the Mississippi at Cairo, then up the Mississippi to St. Louis. Changing boats at St. Louis, they headed west on the Missouri, the Big Muddy, fighting the current for 457 miles, as far as the river's sudden dramatic bend. There, they went ashore at either of two miserable mud-bound little river settlements, Wayne City or Westport, which put them within a few miles of independence still the only town of consequence on the frontier. White, black, young and old, they crowded the upbound steamers in the company of hellfire preachers and card sharps, or an occasional pallid Easterner traveling west for his health. Nancy Tyler Holmes is said to have worn a white lace cap that concealed an ugly scar. As a child in Kentucky during a Shawnee uprising, she allegedly saved herself by pretending to be dead never moving or making a sound as she was being scalped. True or not, the story served long among her descendants as a measure of family grit. In the summer of 1846, Anderson Truman came on from Kentucky, and for some unexplained reason by horseback, which was one of the few exceptional things ever recorded about Anderson Truman. Possibly he couldn't afford boat passage. Of this first Truman to reach Jackson County, there's not a great deal to be said. His full name was Anderson Ship Truman. His people were English and Scotch-Irish and farmers as far back as anyone knew. He was slight, gentle, soft-spoken, 30 years old and without prospects. Nonetheless, Mary Jane Holmes, who was five years younger, had seen enough in him to defy her mother and marry him. On the pretext of visiting a married sister, she had returned to Kentucky earlier that summer, and once there, announced her intentions. Her mother, the redoubtable Nancy Tyler Holmes, was horrified, as she let Mary Jane know in a letter from Missouri dated July 24, 1846, a letter dictated to another of her daughters, which suggests that Nancy Tyler Holmes may have been illiterate. Since hearing the news, she had been unable to sleep or eat, Mary, you are the first daughter I have that has refused to take my advice. What made Anderson Truman so unacceptable is unclear. An explanation given later was that Mother Holmes thought Mary Jane was marrying down, since the Trumans had no slaves. The wedding took place in Kentucky in mid-August at the home of the married sister, a handsome red brick house with white trim that still stands. Then Mary Jane's Mr. Truman, as she would always refer to him, set off by horse for the wild country of Missouri, intending to stay only long enough to secure the blessing of his new mother-in-law. His first letter from Missouri reached Mary Jane a month later. To his amazement, he had been welcomed with open arms, her mother and sisters all hugging and kissing him, everybody laughing and crying at once. He was urged to stay and take up the frontier life. He could be happy anywhere, even in Missouri, he wrote to Mary Jane, if only she were with him. As for myself, I believed that I would be satisfied if you was out here. I believe I can live here if you were willing. She arrived by steamboat, and with her mother's blessing and the wedding gift of a home slave named Hannah and her child, the young couple settled on a rented farm belonging to a prominent local figure named Johnston Likens a Baptist missionary who had come to the frontier originally to bring salvation to the Indians, but had lately turned to land speculation. 
He and others were in the throes of founding a new town on the Missouri's Great Bend, at the juncture of the Kansas River and the Missouri, this to be ambitiously named Kansas City. To such men, the future was in towns and trade. But it was land that the Kentucky people came for, the high, rolling, fertile, open country of Jackson County, with its clear springs and two considerable rivers, the Little Blue and the Blue, both flowing out of Kansas Territory. Every essential was at hand, limestone quarries, splendid bluegrass pastures, very like those of Kentucky, and ample timber where the creeks and rivers ran. It was land beautiful to see, rising and falling in broad swells and giving way to long horizons. To cut through the sod with a plow took six to eight yoke of oxen, but beneath the crust the dark prairie loam could be two to six feet deep. In places, along the river bottoms, it was twenty feet deep. Solomon and Harriet Louisa Young made their start on a farm known as the Parish Place, not far from the Missouri River and well within the projected outlines of Kansas City. Then, shortly afterward, in 1844, they made a first claim to 80 acres of public land on high ground back from the Blue River, approximately 16 miles south of Independence, on what was called Blue Ridge. It was fertile, well-drained ground, ideal grazing country, good for corn and wheat, as high and fine as any land in the county, with distant views miles into Kansas Territory. The family expanded, and so did Solomon's holdings. Six more children were born, Sarah Ann, Harrison, Elizabeth, Laura Jane, Martha Ellen, and Ada, as ever larger parcels of land were acquired. A house and barn went up. Solomon's financial setbacks were frequent and might have crushed a less resilient spirit, but by reputation he was one of the best farmers and stockmen in the county, and in the long run he prospered. He had an eye for horses, he knew mules, he knew land, and he bought and sold either at every opportunity. In time he established a trans-prairie freighting enterprise and amassed land holdings that for Jackson County amounted to a small empire. By 1860, at the age of 35, he could count himself a wealthy man, with land and property valued at nearly $50,000. He is said to have owned as much as 5,000 acres, fancy blooded horses, and there was real silver on the table. Then came the war. To many in western Missouri, the Civil War commenced not in 1861 with the attack on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, but in 1854 when Congress passed the fateful Kansas-Nebraska Act, leaving to the residents of the territories of Kansas and Nebraska the decision of whether to allow slavery. The new bill, designed to ease tension, had exactly the opposite effect. A series of increasingly violent confrontations between slaveholders and abolitionists finally erupted in a terrible border war in 1856. It raged all up and down the Missouri-Kansas line and continued until the surrender at Appomattox. Atrocities were committed by both sides, by the likes of the fiery abolitionist John Brown and such pro-slavery border ruffians as Quantrill's raiders. Like many settlers along the border, the Youngs were caught in the middle. In 1861, while Solomon, an avowed Union man, was far afield on one of his wagon train expeditions, the Young farm was raided by Union soldiers. 
By Harriet Louise's recollection, they shot four hundred Hampshire hogs, then cut out only the hams, leaving the rest to rot. Harriet Louisa was ordered to bake biscuits, which she did until her hands blistered. Some of the soldiers passed the time playing cards in the yard, sitting in the mud on her best hand-sewn quilt. Others, out of sheer cussedness, blasted away at her hens. They threatened to hang fifteen-year-old Harrison Young. Then, bored with their game, they let him go, but not before they set the hay barns ablaze. That was only the first raid. More followed. Then came the infamous Union measure known as General Order 11. To prevent the populace from harboring and supplying Confederate guerrillas, all civilians in the outlying areas of Jackson, Cass, and Bates counties were to remove from their places of residence. Twenty thousand people were driven from their homes. The Union cavalry helped themselves to whatever of value was left behind, then put a torch to buildings and crops. The Youngs were permitted to take away one wagon load of possessions. Little Martha Ellen would remember trudging northward on a hot, dusty road behind the swaying wagon, headed for bitter exile in Kansas City. Anderson Truman, meanwhile, had fared far better. He and his family had moved across the Missouri to Platte County, which, close as it was, the war hardly touched. An increasingly religious man, he wished no part in violence. He hated Catholics, but little else apparently, and he kept to his land and labors living simply and almost without incident. For Martha Ellen Young, Matt, or Matty as she was known, life had picked up again three years after the war in 1868, the year she turned 17 and the family resettled on Blue Ridge in a new, more spacious house. Harriet Louisa had chosen the spot. The immediate farm comprised 600 acres, with fields bound by squarely built limestone walls, rock fences as they were known. Whatever his losses from the war, Solomon appears to have taken hold again. Matt had her pick of several fine saddle horses, and would spend some of the happiest days of her life riding side saddle over the high open land. If she never learned to milk a cow, her father advised, she would never have to milk a cow. So she never learned. She did learn to bake and sew and to use a rifle as well as a man. Lively is the adjective that turns up in old correspondence to describe Mattie Young. Presently she was sent away to the Lexington Baptist Female College in sedate, tree-shaded Lexington, Missouri, where for two years she learned to sketch, play the piano, and acquired a lifelong love of books and the poetry of Alexander Pope. Of above average height, about five foot six, she was a slender young woman with dark hair, a round, bright face, and a way of looking directly at people with her clear gray-blue eyes. Like her father, whom she adored, she was also inclined to speak her mind. The social occasions Mattie Young loved best were the dances at home in the front parlors or at neighboring farms. She was a spirited dancer, a lightfoot Baptist. One winter, after a blizzard, there was a dance every night for a week. Neighbors would dance most of the night, then spend the following day riding in big box sleighs cross-country to the next house. Possibly it was on such a night that she first met John Truman who, since the end of the war, had returned with his family to Jackson County and taken up farming nearby. 
In any event, they seem to have known one another for some while before announcing their plans to marry in 1881, by which time Maddie was 29. John Anderson Truman, who was a year older, had had no education beyond a rural school, nor had he any special skills or money. None of the Trumans had ever had money. Still, he was ambitious. He aspired to be a stock trader like Solomon Young, and he was a hard worker, cheerful, eager to please. He loved to sing while Maddie played the piano. He also had a violent temper, though thus far this had landed him in no trouble. Overall, he made a good impression. The wedding took place at the Young home three days after Christmas, December 28, 1881. The couple's own first home was in Lamar, Missouri, a dusty, wind-blown market town and county seat, 90 miles due south. For $685, John became the proud owner of a corner lot and a white frame house measuring all of 20 by 28 feet, which was hardly more than the dimensions of the Young's kitchen. It had six tiny rooms, no basement, no running water, and no plumbing. But it was new, snug, and sunny, with a casement window in the parlor on the southern side. For another $200, John bought a barn diagonally across the street, and there he opened for business, his announcement in the Lamar Democrat reading as follows. Mules bought and sold. I will keep for sale at the White Barn on Kentucky Avenue a lot of good mules. Anyone wanting teams will do well to call on J.A. Truman. Maddie's first child, a girl, was stillborn the couple's first autumn in Lamar. A year and a half later, a second child, a boy, was born in a bedroom off the parlor so small there was barely space for the bed. The attending physician, Dr. W. L. Griffin, received a fee of $15, and to celebrate the occasion, the new father planted a seedling pine in the front yard. The date was May 8, 1884. Two days later, a Baptist circuit rider took the baby out into the spring air, and holding him up in the sunshine, remarked what a sturdy boy he was. Not for a month afterward, however, did Dr. Griffin bother to register the birth at the county clerk's office up the street, and even then the child was entered nameless. In a quandary over a middle name, Maddie and John were undecided whether to honor her father or his. In the end they compromised with the letter S. It could be taken to stand for Solomon or Ship, but actually stood for nothing a practice not unknown among the Scotch-Irish, even for first names. The baby's first name was Harry, after his uncle Harrison. Harry S.